Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 28, verses 10 through 19a. Let us listen now for God's word to us. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place. And he dreamed that there was a ladder set upon the earth, the top of it reaching to the heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And the Lord stood beside him and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. And your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And all of the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and your offspring. Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Then Jacob woke from his sleep and said, Surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning, and he took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. And he called that place Bethel. This is the word of the Lord. So we're continuing with the story of Jacob that, that we began last week. We pick up here with the story of Jacob as he's on a journey. For him, it's a journey that is marked by incredible fear and anxiety. As we saw last week, Jacob is known as a bit of a trickster. He's been a little bit deceitful. First, he weaseled Esau's birthright from him by taking advantage of him while he was famished. Then, he and his mother cook up this scheme to steal Esau's blessing from Isaac, their blind and aged father. So at this point, as you might imagine, Esau has had enough. He's sick of it. And he decides that when the time is right... He's going to kill his brother. But Rebekah gets wind of this. She, she, she knows about Esau's anger and his fury. So she and Isaac decide to, to save their son by sending him away. This is no doubt a moment of great despair for Jacob. Fear and anxiety and isolation. Because what good is a birthright and a blessing if you're on the run? If, if you can't even be with your family, your own family, without fearing for your life. So he's on this journey. Not quite sure how it will end up. He's been sent off to, to find a wife in another land. Not sure what he'll find when he gets there. So we pick up with Jacob as he's on the way, on the way to this new place. And he stops in a certain place. Nowhere special, just some place. And this place just 
happens to be the place where he stops and decides to lie down and uses a rock for a pillow because that's all he has. Still seems like an odd choice to me. But, but it's in this place of fear and anxiety and loneliness and isolation. It's in this place where God shows up and meets Jacob. God doesn't come to Jacob after he's received the blessing from Isaac to give him this promise. God doesn't show up then. God doesn't show up when everything is good for Jacob. God shows up here. God interrupts Jacob's anxious journey and meets him in this place somewhere between a conflict-ridden past and an uncertain future. This is where God meets Jacob. And as we know, probably pretty well, Jacob has this dream of a ladder or a staircase or a ramp or whatever it might be. And upon this ladder, the angels of God are ascending and descending. And the Lord is there beside Jacob and says to him the same thing that he said to his father Isaac and to his grandfather Abraham. God repeats the promise originally made with Abraham. A promise not only of offspring and land, but also a promise that through Jacob now, all of the families of the world will be blessed. Just as God said to Abraham and Isaac, God tells Jacob that he is blessed in order to be a blessing. But there's there's this one line in here that I think is is rather funny considering what happens next. God says to Jacob, God says, know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. So Jacob wakes up from this dream refreshed and renewed. And, and he wakes up and he's excited and he shouts, surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. It's this eureka moment for Jacob as he realizes that he has stumbled upon something so mysterious and sacred. He has found the very entry place to heaven. How awesome is this place, Jacob says. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So he takes his pillow and sets it as a pillar. And he anoints it with oil and renames that place Bethel, meaning the house of God. And as Jacob is going through this whole routine, talking about this place, this place, I, 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 just, I can't imagine, I can only imagine how difficult it must have been for God not to lean over and slap Jacob upside the head and say, Jacob, did you not hear me? I said I would be with you wherever you go. I will be with you wherever you go. Why do you think? This place is so special. This is just a certain place. Because you had some dream here? The presence of the Lord was promised to Jacob wherever he went. And he thought God was only in that place. This was just a certain place, not a special place. Jacob didn't discover some magical or sacred spot. The place was special because God was but God was there only because Jacob was there. God was there to meet Jacob in his uncertain place. 
in his place of fear and anxiety and tribulation. But Jacob, like most of us admittedly probably would have done, assumes that it's something special about this particular place. So Bethel becomes a special sacred place for a while. When, when the, the northern kingdom of Israel splits from the southern kingdom of Judah, there's even a temple that is in this place for a while, a temple at Bethel. But as life goes, Bethel eventually all but disappears. It loses almost all significance for, for the people, for the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. By the time we get to the life of Jesus and to the New Testament, nearly all memory of Bethel has been erased. There is no mention of this place that was once thought so sacred, not once in the entire New Testament. So Bethel, the place that Jacob once thought was the site of the gate to heaven, is no more. The ladder to heaven has all but disappeared. But interestingly, while Bethel is not mentioned, Jesus does mention this story at one point. In John chapter 1, as Jesus is calling his first disciples, we meet one of these soon-to-be disciples, Nathaniel. And Nathaniel's a bit of a wise guy. You might remember, he's the one who asks Philip if anything good can come from Nazareth, after he hears about this man, Jesus from Nazareth. But then he finally meets Jesus face-to-face and quickly is convinced, knows, knows deep down that he is indeed the Son of God the king of Israel. Jesus tells him that that he will see even greater things than what he just experienced. Jesus says this, Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened up and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Did you hear that? Ascending and descending upon the Son of Man, not upon the latter. Jesus doesn't say, Hey, Nathaniel, let's go out to Bethel, and I'll show you what Jacob saw, because that's, that's where that is. I'll show you that sacred place. He says, you will see them ascending and descending upon the Son of Man, upon me, Jesus himself. So, so Jesus himself, in some way, becomes or is Jacob's ladder. Jesus himself is the embodiment of that holy place, where the fullness of God's presence is revealed and known and felt. After all, what what is a holy place if not the very dwelling place of God? This is exactly who Jesus is, God in the flesh. So in a certain sense, we can recognize and identify Jesus as this ladder to heaven. Through him, we find life and we have access to God. But I I do think we also need to be a little bit careful with that metaphor because what does it really mean to call Jesus a ladder? I'm a bit weary of that metaphor because because the the risk is that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus uh, so easily becomes something that is reduced to getting us to somewhere else, getting us to another place. It becomes only about getting us into heaven, and Jesus becomes nothing more than a means to an end. And... I think we would all agree that Jesus is far more than that. I'm also wary of it because, in a certain sense, what I see, what I think I see Jesus doing in his life, and especially in his death, is yanking that ladder down and kind of flipping it over on its side. 
showing us that the ladder, that place that we thought was some kind of special access point to God, is something that we can experience even here and now through the life-giving presence of our risen Christ. That the promise that God gave to Jacob is also a promise for us. That in Christ, God has promised to be with us wherever we go. Now, of course, when you flip a ladder over on its side, it kind of looks a bit more like a bridge. And I think a bridge might be a helpful metaphor for who Christ is as well. But bridges are somewhat frightening places for some people, myself in particular. I'd appreciate it if you wouldn't make fun of me about that. I've never been too crazy about bridges. You know, I grew up uh, in South Tampa, and most of the bridges around there are not very scary. They're just kind of long pieces of road, barely over the water, and then a little hump in the middle for small boats to get under. And I like those. I can deal with those. But every year, we go on family vacation down to Anna Maria Island, just south of Tampa. We just got back from there a couple weeks ago. And from where we lived in South Tampa, South Tampa, to get to Anna Maria, you had to go over the Sunshine Skyway Bridge. I don't know if you've ever been on that bridge, but it's, it's a death trap, I promise you. Every year, I dreaded that moment of going over that bridge. Because growing up, I had heard so many stories about accidents that happened on the bridge, or you know, hearing how it would routinely collapse at a moment's notice, killing hundreds of people. I know now that that was just my older brother telling me stories, trying to uh, create fear within me, and clearly it worked, because I still cringe when I have to go over that bridge. He was, he was very successful. But it was also somewhat believable because if you've ever been on the bridge, I mean, it's not always in the best shape. There's this huge, long, yellow suspension cables, and the paint is always cracking or peeling. It's not exactly a comforting sight. Now, I'm not as bad as I used to be. I, I can drive over bridges these days with relative ease, though I do still clench the wheel a bit more tightly, sometimes cut off conversation a bit abruptly if I'm, anyone's in the car with me. I also refuse to be too embarrassed by this fear because the thing about bridges is that we actually should be a little bit terrified of them because bridges are places of uncertainty disguised as certainty. They want us to think that they're solid ground, that they're just road, that just because there's asphalt beneath our wheels that we're somehow impervious to the dangers of the water beneath us. But as we know, accidents do happen. And those accidents are always magnified when on a bridge. There's never a good time or place to get in a wreck or break down, but you especially don't want those things to happen when you're at the very top of the Sunshine Skyway Bridge. But at the same time, even I must admit, we can't avoid bridges sometimes. Bridges are necessary for many of our journeys because there are just some places we can't get to without those bridges. But again, the bridge metaphor, it's not meant to be simply a means to an end. It's not simply about getting us somewhere else. I think the metaphor is more profound than that. If Christ is our bridge, and in him is revealed the fullness of God, perhaps then, stepping out onto that bridge and trusting Christ is the end in itself. Perhaps the bridge is where we as Christians are called to live our lives. 
We would prefer to stay on the land where it's safe and secure, where the paint on the large yellow suspension cables isn't cracking and there's no fear of falling over the side to certain death. But I, I think the other danger of the bridge metaphor is that we can, we can take it to mean that you know, we all come from a certain place and, and we go over, we come from our own kind of camps or whatever, and we, we go over this bridge, we meet together in some new place, and that if we get to that place, if we can cross that bridge, we'll be in this different place as a church, as, as a people, and that place, that will be a holy place. Then, once we get there, we can say, surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. It will be a place where we'll all finally think and believe the same things once we finally cross that bridge together. Or perhaps what we think is, you know, if we can just get those people over there to cross that bridge, take the first bridge out of town, then we'll be good. right? Or we think instead, you know, that bridge over there looks rather appealing. We could get some of our folks cross that bridge and, and be in a, in a different place. you know, and, and, then, and then the presence of the Lord will be in that place. But I don't think it's quite that simple. I think understanding Christ as the bridge means understanding and accepting that we probably won't ever get to that place. Or perhaps that we'll finally discover that that place doesn't even exist, at least not on this side of eternity. Each week we have before us a table that, in my mind, represents the ultimate bridge. It's a bridge that not only connects us to God in a very real and powerful way, reminding us of God's presence with us, but it also connects us to one another. It's a table that, that cuts through what Paul called the dividing walls of hostility, uniting us with other believers in all times and places. Like Jacob, we too find ourselves in a certain place, but also a very uncertain place. Like Jacob, we are somewhere between a conflict-ridden past and an uncertain future. Many in our denomination, and even in this church, feel as though the rug has been pulled out from under them, that the church has changed in ways, it's become something that is barely even recognizable anymore. So the question then is, how do we respond? Will we, like Jacob, cling to the rock that was once our pillow, thinking that there is something special only about this place? Or can we trust that God is indeed even in another place, in every place, calling us out onto the bridge, onto that uncertain territory, that God is here to meet us in our anxiety, in our fear, and here to remind us of the promise. I will be with you wherever you go. We don't know what awaits us when we step out onto that bridge, but we do know that God has promised to be with us wherever we go. Amen.